From the University of Groningen, this is MindWise podcast, hosted and brought to you by psychology students. This is MindWise. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Marco. And I'm Javor. And here with us is Tassos Sarampalis. Tassos works at the Department for Experimental Psychology at the University of Groningen and is currently offering a course on the theory and ethics of research methods. A few weeks ago, we asked him if he would be interested in being the very first guest on our podcast. And fortunately, he said yes. For the duration of the research course, we will upload one 20-minute podcast a week in which we casually try to talk science. And that's where you students come in. You decide what questions will be asked. Just send your questions to mindwise at hoch.nl and we will pick five to ten interesting and exciting questions for each episode. All right, Tassos, thank you again for generously offering to be our first podcast guinea pig, so to speak. Marco, Yavor, nice to see you. Nice to see you as well. How are you today? I'm doing well, you know, for a Monday. Yeah, yeah. for a Monday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for the people who haven't heard of Mindwise before, can you briefly explain what it is about? MindWise is always pitched as the official blog of the Department of Psychology at the University of Groningen. And um, we started this last uh, March. I think we're almost approaching a 12-month uh, full first-year anniversary. Um, I say we. I'm uh, the editor-in-chief of MindWise. There are five other editors and um, a, uh, a board of student editors, a board of six student editors. Yavor is one of them. Yes. And... Um, as I said, we, we it's always pitched as the official blog of the department, but the, sort of as, a, as the editor-in-chief, I like to think of it more of a as an online community. So I like thinking of it in terms of a platform in which um, both students and staff members uh, both write about their views and their work and also get informed about their colleagues and their teachers and their students' work and views. Uh, for me, when I started working here, one of the challenges was that because our department is so big, I mean, you know, we've got what almost 2,000 students, we have about 300 staff members. For me, it was a challenge to even know who is around at any given time, um, who my colleagues are, who my students are, what everybody's doing, know about opportunities, colloquia, talks, whatever. And um, I was really keen on the idea of building such an online community, and MindWise is that. It's a place where you can learn about events in our department. Uh, you can learn about the work of your teachers, uh, the the exchange programs of your fellow students, all sorts of things like that. So, And now we have the podcast as a medium to also sort of um, bring this message across. Exactly. And I remember when we contacted you with our idea of sort of creating a podcast a few weeks ago, you and the MindWise board have already had a similar idea. In fact, you had already planned an interview with Karel, which will be uploaded soon. Um, so... Yeah, you, you just stated that you, you think blogs are a powerful medium to sort of um, teach and and inform also general public about academia. Why do you think podcasts are also a helpful medium? Well, I think um, I think the Internet is a powerful platform. It's, I'm, I'm, it's, I know that I'm not the first one to say this, and it's not news to anybody that the Internet is um, is really the place to be to talk about what is going on. The world has become, um, there are no longer any boundaries. And that's a really wonderful thing. For us yes. academics, 
it's really great that we can not just um, talk about our research in a way that is accessible to everybody and by everybody uh, in the world, uh, but also it, it provides a really wonderful community, a platform for a community that is now no longer bound by uh, uh, geographical limitations. So I think the internet is, um, is going to be very instrumental in shaping the education, uh, higher education and uh, any all forms of education in the near future. Uh, you've seen all these um, online courses being offered and I think this university is also uh, going towards that direction a little bit. But more than anything, I think it's a great way of supplementing our traditional methods of teaching, our lectures, our tutorials, with material that you can find online. So podcasts, for example, are really great because uh, they they often fit in people's lifestyles. They fit into their, you know, 20-minute commutes. I listen to podcasts when I go from my house to the office or when I go from the office to the, you know, the, the far regions of Zernike, and I have 15 or 20 minutes to listen to something. And I know it's perhaps not really great traffic um, uh, behavior, but I listen to podcasts on my headphones while I cycle. A lot of people listen to things, yeah. and a lot of people started listening to podcasts nowadays. Yeah. Yes, it's almost a hype. I mean, I listen to them every day on my bicycle yes. when I go for a run. And this is sort of how this um, idea of doing a podcast with a professor also developed. Because what we thought is that a lot of students find it or perceive it as sort of hard to get to know a professor. Yeah. And maybe often don't use the opportunities that are there, you know, office hours or talking to you in person after a lecture. And so we thought we want to create this podcast in which students guide the content mm -hmm. and in which students have the opportunity to, to just effortlessly send us questions that we will pose. Um, and this is our plan for the next couple of weeks. So we hope to do this alongside the research course for about six weeks and gather questions every week. And I want to say thank you to all the students who have already sent in critical and thoughtful messages to yeah, us. Big thanks. Yeah, big thanks. We have a host of questions um, about research ethics, <laughs> open research, multidisciplinarity, etc. Um, so all these will be posted in upcoming episodes. But for today's episode, um, a lot of students asked if you could tell us more about your own career um, and why you came to Roningen. So we know that you received the bachelor's and master's degree in psychology from the university. No, of... I'll correct you already. I did not. I've, I've never ha received a master's degree in my life. Oh, okay. So that's that's so that's new. Yes, please enlighten us because we know that you. What we know is you received a bachelor's degree in psychology. And you worked at University of California, Berkeley, before you came here. Right. So can you connect a couple of dots for us? I was born in Greece. I lived there all my... Um, uh, I, I, I went to school and high school there. And when I finished high school, I applied for university in England. And I was only interested in studying psychology. So my my options in Greece were limited. And to be honest, I wanted to, to see the world. I wanted to travel. Yeah. I wanted to see what else is around. And I wanted to study in English, to be honest, because I knew that... It's the uh, language to use if you're going to stay in academia. So I moved to the University of Essex when I was 18. That's where I spent three years doing my bachelor's degree in general psychology, very much like this program. And it was during the second year, I think, in my program where um, or when 
I became very interested in the field of psychoacoustics. And um, psychoacoustics, for those who don't know, is the discipline that studies the perception of sounds. So it deals with how humans understand sounds, and that can be speech, music, basic sounds, anything. Um, and I think, looking back now, the reason I became so fascinated by psychoacoustics, or so interested in psychoacoustics, was a mixture of of the the topic itself and the fact that it was uh, it provided some uh, let's say security or certainty because it was it's a, it's it's closer uh, to the hard sciences let's say it's a more it deals with um, aspects of behavior that are a little bit more um, uh, reliable or more um, uh, more based on physiology or based on um, on perception but more than that, I think what I liked uh, about the field is that um, the teacher who taught psychoacoustics at the time, Deb Fantini, who ended up being my PhD advisor, was just a very passionate individual about her field and about academia and just really interested in what she did. And she was simultaneously not just very interested in what she did, but she just uh, she seemed like a very interesting person and a great personality. So I approached her, I think, uh, towards the end of that summer and asked her about her field and she told me about it and then we ended up working together for um, another four years afterwards. So that's how I got into psychoacoustics. So I did my PhD with Deb and uh, Chris Plack, who was my second um, PhD advisor at the University of Essex. And upon finishing that, I moved to California, first to Los Angeles to work there for about a year. Uh, I worked in a place called uh, the House Ear Institute. Uh, uh, I worked on a project on cochlear implants and then moved to Berkeley to work at the University of California in Berkeley. So at the University of California, Berkeley, did you lecture there as well? No, in California, in, uh, in both places, both in Los Angeles and in Berkeley, I was a postdoc, so I was just doing research. I had uh, very little to do with the educational uh, curriculum of my department. So was the teaching and lecturing part something that then brought you to Groningen? Well, to, to be honest, um, my heart is much more onto the teaching side than it is on um, on being a uh, a day-to-day -day active researcher. I like doing research. I feel very uh, strongly about it. But I know that the, the thing that I'm most passionate about is being a teacher. It's communicating um, uh, information with students and to students and working with students uh, so when I had the opportunity to uh, to get a lectureship in the University of Groningen six years ago it was something that I was very interested in and I've been very happy I have to say that it's been um, it's been a really uh, uh, it's been a really good move for me when did you first discover that you had this passion for teaching I I, I became very interested in teaching from my undergraduate years when I, um, I remember uh, tutoring statistics uh, to fellow students and afterwards when I was doing my PhD I was a teaching assistant in a number of courses including some on research methods coincidentally and uh, I remember being very interested in, in, in that part of mm -hmm. academia. So correct me if I'm wrong but it seems that your effort has always been sort of guided by your passion that you already discovered during the second year of your, your bachelor's degree, psychoustics? Um, I'd, I'd like to, to tell you that everything is was so predetermined or pre-planned and so nicely laid out, but a lot of it was also jumping onto 
good opportunities and um, and going to places that were interesting, moving with people who were interesting. Um, so it's also a matter of trying things and seeing how they are and um, and close slowly honing into what you find most mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. yeah, that sort of links up with another question that arose. Um, most of our listeners are probably more than halfway into our undergraduate studies and questions concerning the foreseeable future naturally arise. So shall I apply for a master's degree or take a gap year to travel or start a PhD right away? Mm -hmm. um, things you do. Um, or there could be the option of an internship or do I even want to stay within academia or change my bachelor sure. altogether? So all these questions arise. And obviously there doesn't seem to be one right answer. But I was wondering about your opinion concerning the following two perspectives. Firstly, there's this American writer, Joseph Campbell, who became famous for it, for his advice to follow your bliss. Um, he basically said, if you do what you like, then you do it a lot. And what you do a lot, you become good at, um, hence successful. And the other advice that I recently heard during an interview with Kevin Kelly, who's the founder of Wired magazine, um, he said, find your passion through mastery and not vice versa, because in today's um, market situation, that's a more reliable way to happiness. Because once you master a skill, naturally, there will be some sort of happiness or enjoyment that goes along with it. Um, so why do you think, Tassos, that you like the things you do? And what would you tell a student like us um, that really enjoy the idea of becoming a researcher, but haven't really found a passion for a specific research field yet. Well, I would first start by saying that the two perspectives that you uh, you talked about are not mutually exclusive. You can you can direct your efforts by figuring out what you already uh, are very passionate about and what ends up, as you said, um, giving you bliss. I think I mentioned something like that also in my lecture a few days ago. That I do, I do think that it is important uh, to work on topics and to do things that you are intrinsically motivated to work on. I think they make you not just a, a better, a better scientist in the in this case, but also I think they make you a happier individual, and that thing that has a feedback into who you are as a scientist. So for me, it's it's important to to do things that end up fulfilling you as an individual, things that um, uh, you want to be working on rather than things that you have to be working on. On the other hand, I also really like the second perspective because I've long been um, a proponent of this idea that everything in the world is beautiful. I, I cannot imagine anything that cannot be perceived as being beautiful. And I think it's in understanding the mechanics and the details and the, and the intricacies of any system, any job, any act, uh, anything at all um, that you become uh, deeply connected to it and very passionate about it. it. This might seem a little bit idealistic, but I do really think that mastery does also offer an, uh, an enormous amount of uh, satisfaction and, and um, fulfillment in what you do. Having said that, you need to start somewhere, so it's a good idea to start with something that you're already feeling interested in. And it doesn't, it, people, it, it's important to also remember that your entire life is a, is a path. You don't make decisions this year or next year that are 
uh, immutable that never change again and that you're um, you're stuck with them for the rest of your life it's important to remember that your entire life is one big meandering path through um, through the cosmos and it's 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 liberating to also remember that you can change things as you go along and you evolve I don't think I would have been able to predict six years ago where I would be today so courage seems to be an essential element in there though because oh, I guess foolishness of... perhaps if you want uh, sort of the same thing courage mm. and foolishness just openness to to accepting opportunities for what they are without a lot of judgment how much would you say um, is a good researchers um, future determined by let's say how much they how much work they put into it and how dedicated they are and, and how much of it is let's say chance uh, finding the right uh, researcher to work with in the beginning finding the right place forget who said it but there's this really great line um, uh, that there's there's something really funny about luck the more I work the more of it I have and I think I think opportunities you have to be simultaneously very uh, you have to have your eyes open to see opportunities as they appear but really more than anything else you create opportunities you create the environment in which you uh, in which you live more than you just consume it yes. so luck absolutely has um, something to do with it you'll hear about this in three weeks luck is a uh, is one of um, luck plays a role in one of my favorite topics in the research methods course you'll see that soon um, but you have to be willing to create things and that's I think the mark that is I think what sets um, the, the really good people apart that's good advice Okay, if you don't mind, then I have three rapid-fire questions for okay. you. Do okay. I have to answer fast as well, or can no, I... No, uh... only rapid-fire questions. Okay. The answers can be longer, and All you right. can sort of justify your answer. So I'm the first ready. one is, would you rather have a TED Talk online with 10 million views, or be on the cover of Nature magazine? Oh, you, can I say neither? I, <laughs> um, I wouldn't... If I had to choose one of them, I'd rather go for the TED Talk, but mostly because I'd rather not be on the cover of Nature, not because I'm super um, enthusiastic about being the object of, what was it, 10 million viewers' um, attention. Okay, second one. If Richard Murray would come over for dinner, what meal would you prepare? <laughs> <laughs> if Richard Murray would come over for dinner, what meal would I prepare? Actually, he did come over for dinner. I had dinner with him t three days ago, um, but I didn't cook it this time. Why would I cook for Richard? Uh, I'd cook Mexican food. That's the last thing I remember cooking for him. So Mexican food. Mexican food, mm. food is very good, and we both miss it, having lived in the States. On a side note, what's your favorite Greek food? Favorite Greek food? Um... You know, I don't think I would ever imagine I would say this when I was a, uh, when I was younger, but I really like the very basic home style uh, Greek vegetable dishes. Okay. So that's what I would go vegetable for. Vegetable dishes. Yeah, you know, stewed green beans. You should go and check out my my previous column, the Epicurean. I've got some of those up there. Ah, I have checked some we'll of them. Do. Number three. What are two books you always wanted to read but never found the time to? There are two books that I started a, mul a number of times but never got a chance to finish and I wish I had. One is Steppenwolf, 
which um, I think most of you know about. And the other one is Zen. Thank you, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Piercing. Um, it's sort of hard to get through this book, though. It's I, hard to get through that book. You know, I recommend it's, an audio book. I listen to, you know, via headphones that help. It's true. I might go back to that. Uh, it's been more than a decade and a half, a half since I last um, attempted Zen, mm. so I might go back to that. But those are two books. Okay, so before wrapping up today's podcast. I would like to mention one article which I believe many of us students don't know, not aware of, but it's a good one. Um, it's an article by William James, the founder of American Experimental Psychology, and it's titled The Subjective Effects of Nitrous Oxide. It's from 1882, and in it, he basically describes his experience of being super high on laughing gas, um, which we all know and value. And I would like to quote James. Laughing gas or being high? Uh, well, both maybe. Both maybe, yeah. Um, so I, I quote William James. Some observations of the effects of nitrous oxide gas intoxication have made me understand better than ever before the strength and weakness of Hegel's philosophy. I strongly urge others to repeat the experiment, which with pure gas is short and harmless enough. Well, that reminds me of Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception. I remember reading that um, um, when I was um, in my late teens and um, think feeling similarly about Huxley's yeah. impression of, um, of hallucinogenics. I think the big difference, though, between Huxley's masculine experience and William James's um, experience on Laughing Gas is that in his article, um, he shares a poem that he okay. wrote during his trip. And um, to sort of appreciate the diverse talents of the founders of our discipline, I thought it would be nice um, that at the end of this podcast, you could read just the first lines of this poem for us. Do you want me to read a bit? Well, I'll have to. Let me, let me have a look. This is uh, William James's High on Nitrous Oxide. It's probably the worst poem that you can read in print. Well, I can see, reading it now, I can see what you mean. Well, let's have a go at it. This is by William James in 1882. This is when this hair was written. And it goes like this. So what's mistake but a kind of take? What's nausea but a kind of usia? Sober, drunk, unk, astonishment. Everything can become the subject of criticism. How criticize with so without something to criticize? Agreement? Disagreement? Emotion? Motion. By God, now that hurts. By God, how it doesn't hurt. Okay, so with that, we end our podcast and hope to see you next week. Thank you for, for being here with us, Tassis. Thank you very much. It was nice to talk to you. And thanks for the listeners for tuning in. If you have feedback concerning this episode or want your own questions to be featured in upcoming podcasts, please send us an email at mindwise.org.nl. This podcast was a production of Mindwise for the Department of Psychology at the University of Groningen. Let's talk science! I did a little bit more louder.